This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Found Objects by Jennifer Egan, which was published in The New Yorker in December of 2007. The woman glanced up, her soft brown eyes moving over Sasha's face. What did she see? Sasha wished that she could turn and peer into the mirror again, as if something about herself might at last be revealed. Some lost thing. But she didn't turn. She held still and let the woman look. The story was chosen by Susan Choi, who's the author of five novels, including My Education and Trust Exercise, which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2019. Hi, Susan. Hi. So um, what made you choose this story by Jennifer Egan to read today? You know, a couple of things. One is just that I love this story and it so rewards rereading. I've not just been rereading this story, but teaching it for years now. And um, my students always really connect with it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that I, I had a feeling it would be really fun to read aloud. And it was. The story is about a, a troubled young woman who steals from other people and is trying to cope with that situation through therapy. What do you think it is in the story that your students connect to? They always admire the brilliant structure, the way in which Jennifer Egan really enables us to inhabit Sasha through especially her description of the objects, that tactility and the deliciousness of these objects. So my, my students really admire the writing and the artistry so much, but I think also this story speaks to them because it feels really contemporary to them because... I think this experience of somebody who's broken in this way that isn't immediately visible, but that's really, really deep, you know, for better and for worse, a lot of them really understand that. The story was originally written as a freestanding story, and eventually it became the opening chapter of Egan's novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Did you read it first in the magazine or in the book? I read it first in the magazine and then read it in the book and thought it was so remarkable that it was able to function brilliantly both by itself and as as the opening of that novel it's that's not always true I mean I've I've loved a lot of stories that then ended up being incorporated into books and thought oh I kind of wish the story had remained on its own and and in the case of this one it it is brilliant in both contexts um when I teach it usually my students haven't encountered it in the novel and um they don't need the novel but it's like an extra bonus to them usually a lot of them go on to read it mm-hmm and in the book, you learn a little more about Sasha's earlier life and about her later life. Do you think that affects how you now read the story? Oddly, it doesn't. I continue to interact with this story on its own terms. I don't have that extra knowledge kind of coming in. It's a really interesting thing to me that the story by itself feels utterly complete and that the story in the book also feels like an indispensable piece of something larger um, and that there's no sort of sense of it being compromised in any way, depending on where you're reading it. What does, um, what has Jennifer Egan's writing in general meant for you as a writer? Do you think she's an influence on you? Oh my God. I think she's even more of an influence than I consciously realized. It's funny. Um, I love this story. And as I say, I've reread the story a couple times a year, um, since I started teaching it. And when I was reading it just now, a number of things popped out at me that I realized I feel like I had pretty much, and I'm not sure if this is the place to say it, straight up stolen them from my <laughs> own story, Flashlight, which you published last year. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that her work is enormously influential on mine in, in ways that I'm conscious and unconscious of. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an absolutely positive sign for the story, that it, it became absorbed into your psyche. Yeah, it became absorbed in the way that, you know, the stories that I just find indispensable, I can't imagine them not existing. And there aren't loads and loads of stories like that for me, that once I read them, they become a touchstone. And this is one of them. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Susan Choi reading Found Objects by Jennifer Egan. Found Objects It began the usual way, 
in the bathroom of the Lasmo Hotel. Sasha was adjusting her yellow eyeshadow in the mirror when she noticed a bag on the floor beside the sink that must have belonged to the woman whose peeing she could faintly hear through the vault-like door of a toilet stall. Inside the rim of the bag, barely visible, was a wallet made of pale green leather. It was easy for Sasha to recognize looking back that the peeing woman's blind trust had provoked her. I live in a city where people will steal the hair off your head if you give them half a chance, but you leave your stuff lying in plain sight and expect it to be waiting for you when you come back? It made her want to teach the woman a lesson. But that wish only camouflaged the deeper feeling that Sasha always had, that fat, tender wallet offering itself to her hand. It seemed so dull, so life as usual just to leave it there rather than seize the moment, accept the challenge, take the leap, fly the coop, throw caution to the wind, live dangerously. I get it, Kaz, her therapist, said. And take the fucking thing. You mean, steal it. He was trying to get Sasha to use that word, which was harder to avoid in the case of a wallet than with a lot of the things she'd lifted over the past year when her condition, as Kaz referred to it, had begun to accelerate. Five sets of keys, 14 pairs of sunglasses, a child's striped scarf, binoculars, a cheese grater, a pocket knife, 28 bars of soap, 85 pens ranging from cheap ballpoints she'd used to sign debit card slips to the aubergine Visconti that cost $260 online, which she'd lifted from her former boss's lawyer during a contracts meeting. Sasha never took anything from stores. Their cold, inert goods didn't tempt her. Only from people. Okay, she said. Steal it. Sasha and Kaz had dubbed that feeling she got the personal challenge, as in taking the wallet was a way for Sasha to assert her toughness, her individuality. What they needed to do was switch things around in her head so that the challenge became not taking the wallet, but leaving it. That would be the cure, although Kaz never used words like cure. He wore funky sweaters and let her call him Kaz, but he was old school inscrutable, to the point where Sasha couldn't tell if he was gay or straight, if he'd written famous books, or if, as she sometimes suspected, he was one of those escaped cons who impersonate surgeons and wind up leaving their operating tools inside people's skulls. Of course, these questions could have been resolved on Google in less than a minute, but they were useful questions, according to Kaz. And so far, Sasha had resisted. The couch where she lay in his office was blue leather and very soft. Kaz liked the couch, he'd told her, because it relieved them both of the burden of eye contact. You don't like eye contact? Sasha had asked. Seemed like a weird thing for a therapist to admit. I find it tiring, he'd said. This way, we can both look where we want. Where will you look? He smiled. You can see my options. Where do you usually look when people are on the couch? Around the room, Kaz said. At the ceiling. Into space. Do you ever sleep? No. Sasha usually looked at the window, which faced the street, and tonight, as she continued her story, was rippled with rain. She'd glimpsed the wallet, tender and overripe as a peach. She'd plucked it from the woman's bag and slipped it into her own small handbag, which she'd zipped shut even before the sound of peeing had stopped. She'd flicked open the bathroom door and floated back through the lobby to the bar. She and the wallet's owner had never seen each other. Pre-wallet, Sasha had been in the grip of a dire evening. Lame date, yet another. Brooding behind dark bangs, sometimes glancing at the flat-screen TV where a Jets game seemed to interest him more than Sasha's admittedly worn-out tales of Benny Salazar, her old boss, 
who ran a record label and also, Sasha happened to know, sprinkled gold flakes into his coffee as an aphrodisiac, she suspected, and sprayed pesticide in his armpits. Post-wallet, however, the scene tingled with mirthful possibility. Sasha felt the waiters eyeing her as she sidled back to the table holding her handbag with its secret weight. She sat down and took a sip of her melon madness martini and cocked her head at Alex. She smiled her yes-no smile. Remote yet flirtatious, quizzical yet penetrating. A smile she could only muster at certain lucky times. Hello, she said. The yes-no smile was amazingly effective. You're happy, Alex said. I'm always happy, Sasha said. Sometimes I just forget. Alex had paid the bill while she was in the bathroom, clear proof that he'd been on the verge of aborting their date. Now he studied her. You feel like going somewhere else? They stood. Alex wore black cords and a white button-down shirt. He was a legal secretary. On email, he'd been fanciful, almost goofy. But in person, he seemed simultaneously anxious and bored. She could tell that he was in excellent shape, not because he went to the gym, but because he was young enough that his body was still imprinted with whatever sports he'd played in high school and college. Sasha, who was 35, had passed that point. Still, not even Kaz knew her real age. The closest anyone had come to guessing it was 31, and most put her in her 20s. She worked out daily and avoided the sun. Her online profiles all listed her as 28. As Sasha followed Alex from the bar, she couldn't resist unzipping her purse and touching the fat green wallet just for a second, for the contraction it made her feel around her heart. You're aware of how the theft makes you feel, Kaz said, to the point where you remind yourself of it to improve your mood. But do you think about how it makes the other person feel? Sasha tipped back her head to look at him. She made a point of doing this now and then just to remind Kaz that she wasn't an idiot. She knew that the question had a right answer. She and Kaz were collaborators writing a story whose end had already been determined. She would get well. She would stop stealing from people and start caring again about the things that had once guided her. Music. The network of friends she'd made when she first came to New York. A set of goals she'd scrawled on a big sheet of newsprint and taped to the walls of her early apartments. Find a band to manage. Understand the news. Study Japanese. Learn the harp. I don't think about the people, Sasha said. But it isn't that you lack empathy, Kaz said. We know that because of the plumber. Sasha sighed. She'd told Kaz the plumber story about a month ago, and he'd found a way to bring it up at almost every session since. The plumber was an old man, sent by Sasha's landlord to investigate a leak in the apartment below hers. He'd appeared in Sasha's doorway, tufts of gray on his head, and within a minute, boom, he'd hit the floor and crawled under her bathtub like an animal, fumbling its way into a familiar hole. The fingers he'd groped toward the bolts behind the tub were grimed to cigar stubs, and reaching made his sweatshirt hike up, exposing a soft, white back. Sasha turned away, stricken by the old man's abasement, anxious to leave for her temp job, except that the plumber was talking to her, asking about the length and frequency of her showers. I never use it, she told him curtly. I shower at the gym. He nodded without acknowledging her rudeness, apparently used to it. Sasha's nose began to prickle. She shut her eyes and pushed hard on both temples. Opening her eyes, she saw the plumber's tool belt lying on the floor at her feet. It had a beautiful screwdriver in it, the orange, translucent handle gleaming like a lollipop in its worn leather loop. 
the silvery shaft sculpted, sparkling. Sasha felt herself contract around the object in a single yawn of appetite. She needed to hold the screwdriver just for a minute. She bent her knees and plucked it noiselessly from the belt. Not a bangle jangled. Her bony hands were spastic at most things, but she was good at this. Made for it, she often thought, in the first drifty moments after lifting something. And once the screwdriver was in her hand, she felt instant relief from the pain of having an old, soft-backed man snuffling under her tub. And then something more than relief. A blessed indifference, as if the very idea of feeling pain over such a thing were baffling. And what about after he'd gone? Kaz had asked when Sasha told him the story. How did the screwdriver look to you then? There was a pause. Normal, she said. Really, not special anymore. Like any screwdriver. Sasha had heard Kaz shift behind her and felt something happen in the room. The screwdriver which she'd placed on the table, recently supplemented with a second table, where she kept the things she'd lifted, and which she'd barely looked at since, seemed to hang in the air of Kaz's office. It floated between them, a symbol. And how did you feel, Kaz asked quietly, about having taken it from the plumber you pitied? How did she feel? How did she feel? There was a right answer, of course. At times, Sasha had to fight the urge to lie simply as a way of depriving cause of it. Bad, she said. Okay? I felt bad. Shit, I'm bankrupting myself to pay for you. Obviously, I get that this isn't a great way to live. More than once, Kaz had tried to connect the plumber to Sasha's father, who had disappeared when she was six. She was careful not to indulge this line of thinking. I don't remember him, she told Kaz. I have nothing to say. She did this for Kaz's protection. And her own. They were writing a story of redemption, of fresh beginnings, and second chances. But in that direction lay only sorrow. Sasha and Alex crossed the lobby of the Lasmo Hotel. Sasha hugged her purse to her shoulder, the warm ball of wallet snuggled in her armpit. As they passed the angular budded branches by the big glass doors to the street, a woman zigzagged into their path. Wait, she said, you haven't seen, I'm desperate. Sasha felt a twang of terror. It was the woman whose wallet she'd taken. She knew this instantly, although the person before her had nothing in common with the blithe, raven-haired wallet owner she'd pictured. This woman had vulnerable brown eyes and flat, pointy shoes that clicked too loudly on the marble floor. There was plenty of gray in her frizzy brown hair. Sasha took Alex's arm, trying to steer him through the doors. She felt his pulse of surprise at her touch, but he stayed put. Have we seen what? He said. Someone stole my wallet. My ID is gone and I have to catch a plane tomorrow morning. I'm just desperate. She stared beseechingly at both of them. It was the sort of frank need that New Yorkers quickly learn how to hide and Sasha recoiled. It had never occurred to her that the woman was from out of town. Have you called the police? Alex asked. The concierge said he would call, but I'm also wondering, could it have fallen out somewhere? She looked helplessly at the floor around their feet. Sasha relaxed slightly. This woman was the type who annoyed people without meaning to. Apology shadowed her movements even now as she followed Alex to the concierge's desk. Sasha trailed behind. Is someone helping this person? She heard Alex ask. The concierge was young and spiky-haired. We've called the police, he said defensively. Alex turned to the woman. Where did this happen? In the ladies' room, I think. 
Who else was there? No one. It was empty? There might have been someone, but I didn't see her. Alex swung around to Sasha. You were just in the bathroom, he said. Did you see anyone? No, she managed to say. She had some Xanax in her purse, but she couldn't open her purse. Even with it zipped, she feared that the wallet would blurt into view in some way that she couldn't control, unleashing a cascade of horrors, arrest, shame, poverty, death. Alex turned to the concierge. How come I'm asking these questions instead of you? He said. Someone just got robbed in your hotel. Don't you have, like, security? The words robbed and security managed to pierce the soothing backbeat that pumped through not just the Lassimo, but every hotel like it in New York. There was a mild ripple of interest from the lobby. I've called security, the concierge said, adjusting his neck. I'll call them again. Sasha glanced at Alex. He was angry, and the anger made him recognizable in a way that an hour of aimless chatter, mostly hers, it was true, had not. He was new to New York. He came from someplace smaller. He had a thing or two to prove about how people should treat one another. Two security guys showed up, the same on TV as in life, beefy guys whose scrupulous politeness was somehow linked to their willingness to crack skulls. They dispersed to search the bar. Sasha wished feverishly that she'd left the wallet there as if this were an impulse she'd barely resisted. I'll check the bathroom, she told Alex, and forced herself to walk slowly around the elevator bank. The bathroom was empty. Sasha opened her purse, took out the wallet, unearthed her vial of Xanax, and popped one between her teeth. They worked faster if you chewed them. As the caustic taste flooded her mouth, she scanned the room, trying to decide where to ditch the wallet. In the stall? Under the sink? The decision paralyzed her. She had to do this right, to emerge unscathed. And if she could, if she did, she had a frenzied sense of making a promise to cause. The bathroom door opened, and the woman walked in. Her frantic eyes met Sasha's in the bathroom mirror, narrow, green, equally frantic. There was a pause, during which Sasha felt that she was being confronted. The woman knew, had known all along. Sasha handed her the wallet. She saw from the woman's stunned expression that she was wrong. I'm sorry, Sasha said quickly. It's a problem I have. The woman opened the wallet. Her physical relief at having it back coursed through Sasha in a warm rush, as if their bodies had fused. Everything's there, I swear, she said. I didn't even open it. It's this problem I have, but I'm getting help. I just, please don't tell. I'm hanging on by a thread. The woman glanced up, her soft brown eyes moving over Sasha's face. What did she see? Sasha wished that she could turn and peer into the mirror again, as if something about herself might at last be revealed. Some lost thing. But she didn't turn. She held still and let the woman look. It struck her that the woman was close to her own age, her real age. She probably had children at home. Okay, the woman said, looking down. It's between us. Thank you, Sasha said. Thank you, thank you. Relief and the first gentle waves of Xanax made her feel faint, and she leaned against the wall. She sensed the woman's eagerness to get away, but she had an urge to slide to the floor. There was a rap on the door, a man's voice. Any luck? Sasha and Alex left the hotel and stepped into desolate, windy Tribeca. She was tired of him. In a mere 20 minutes, they'd blown past the point of meaningful connection through shared experience, into the less appealing state of knowing each other too well. Alex wore a knit cap pulled over his forehead. 
His eyelashes were long and black. That was weird, he said finally. Yeah, Sasha said. Then, after a pause, you mean finding it? The whole thing, but yeah. He turned to her. Was it, like, concealed from view? It was lying on the floor in the corner, kind of behind a planter. The utterance of this lie caused tiny pinpricks of sweat to emerge on Sasha's Xanax-soothed skull. She considered saying, actually, there was no planter, but managed not to. It's almost like she did it on purpose, Alex said, for attention or something. She didn't seem like that type. You can't tell. That's something I'm learning here in NYC. You have no fucking idea what people are really like. It's not even that they're two-faced. They're like multiple personalities. She wasn't from New York, Sasha said, irked by his obliviousness even as she sought to preserve it. Remember, she was getting on a plane? True, Alex said. He paused and cocked his head regarding Sasha across the ill-lit sidewalk. But you know what I'm talking about? That thing about people? I do know, she said carefully. But I think you get used to it. I'd just rather go somewhere else. It took Sasha a moment to understand. There is nowhere else, she said. Alex turned to her startled. Then he grinned. Sasha grinned back. Not the yes-no smile. But related. <laughs> That's ridiculous, Alex said. They took a cab and climbed the four flights to Sasha's Lower East Side walk-up. She'd lived there for six years. The place smelled of scented candles, and there was a velvet throw cloth on her sofa bed, and lots of pillows, and an old color TV with a very good picture, and an array of souvenirs from her travels lining the windowsills, a white seashell, a pair of red dice, a small canister of tiger balm from Singapore, now dried to the texture of rubber, a tiny bonsai tree that she watered faithfully. Look at this, Alex said. You've got a tub in the kitchen. I've heard of that. I mean, I've read about it, but I wasn't sure there were any left. The shower part is new, right? This is a bathtub in the kitchen apartment, right? Yep, Sasha said, but I almost never use it. I shower at the gym. The tub was covered with a fitted board. Sasha kept her plates stacked on top of it. Alex ran his hands around the rim of the bath and examined its clawed feet. Sasha took a bottle of grappa from the kitchen cupboard and filled two small glasses. I love this place, Alex said. It feels like old New York. You know this stuff is around, but how do you find it? Sasha leaned against the tub beside him and took a tiny sip of grappa. She was trying to remember Alex's age on his profile. 28, she thought, but he seemed younger than that, maybe a lot younger. She saw her apartment as he must see it, a flash of local color that would fade almost instantly into the swirl of adventures that everyone has on first coming to New York. It jarred Sasha, to think of herself as a glint in the hazy memories that Alex would struggle to organize a year or two from now. Where was that place with the bathtub? Who was that girl? He left the tub to explore the rest of the apartment. To one side of the kitchen was Sasha's bedroom. On the other side, facing the street, was her living room, den, office, which contained two upholstered chairs and the desk she reserved for projects outside of work publicity for bands she believed in, short reviews for Vibe and Spin, although these had fallen off sharply in recent years. In fact, the whole apartment, which six years ago had seemed like a way station to some better place, had ended up solidifying around Sasha, gathering mass and weight until she felt both mired in it and lucky to have it, as if she not only couldn't move, but didn't want to. Alex leaned over to peer at the tiny collection on Sasha's windowsills. He hadn't noticed the tables where she kept the pile of things she'd stolen 
the pens, the binoculars, the keys, the child's scarf, which she lifted simply by not returning it when it dropped from a little girl's neck as her mother led her by the hand from Starbucks. Sasha was already seeing cause by then, so she recognized the litany of excuses even as they throbbed through her head. Winter's almost over. Children grow so fast. Kids hate scarves. It's too late. They're out the door. I'm embarrassed to return it. I could easily not have seen it fall. In fact, I, I didn't. I'm just noticing it now. Look, a scarf. A kid's bright yellow scarf with pink stripes. Too bad. Who could it belong to? Well, I'll, I'll just pick it up and hold it for a minute. At home, she'd washed the scarf by hand and folded it neatly. It was one of the things she liked best. What's all this? Alex asked. He'd discovered the tables now and was staring at the pile. It looked like the work of a miniaturist beaver, a heap of objects that was illegible yet clearly not random. To Sasha's eye, it almost shook under its load of embarrassments and close shaves and little triumphs and moments of pure exhilaration. It contained years of her life compressed. The screwdriver was at the outer edge. Sasha moved closer to Alex, drawn to the sight of him taking everything in. And how did you feel standing with Alex in front of all those things you'd stolen? Kaz asked. Sasha turned her face into the blue couch because her cheeks were heating up and she hated that. She didn't want to explain to Kaz the mix of feelings she'd had standing there with Alex. The pride she took in these objects, a tenderness that was only heightened by the shame of their acquisition. She'd risked everything, and here was the result, the raw, warped core of her life. Watching Alex move his eyes over the pile of objects stirred something in Sasha. She put her arms around him from behind, and he turned, surprised but willing. She kissed him full on the mouth, then undid his zipper and kicked off her boots. Alex tried to lead her toward the other room where they could lie down on the sofa bed, but Sasha dropped to her knees beside the tables and pulled him down, the Persian carpet prickling her back, streetlight falling through the window onto his hungry, hopeful face, his bare white thighs. Afterward, they lay on the rug for a long time. The candles started to sputter. Sasha saw the prickly shape of the bonsai silhouetted against the window near her head. All her excitement had seeped away, leaving behind a terrible sadness, an emptiness that felt violent, as if she'd been gouged. She tottered to her feet, hoping that Alex would leave soon. He still had his shirt on. You know what I feel like doing? He said, standing up, taking a bath in that tub. You can, Sasha said dully. It works. The plumber was just here. She pulled up her jeans and collapsed onto a chair. Alex went to the tub and lifted off the cover. Water gushed from the faucet. Its force had always startled Sasha, the few times she'd used it. Alex's black pants were crumpled on the floor at Sasha's feet. The square of his wallet had worn away the corduroy from one of the back pockets, as if he often wore these pants, and always with the wallet in that place. Sasha glanced over at him. Steam rose from the tub as he dipped in a hand to test the water. Then he came back to the pile of objects and leaned close, as if looking for something specific. Sasha watched him hoping for a tremor of the excitement she'd felt before, but it was gone. Can I put some of these in? He was holding up a packet of bath salts that Sasha had taken from her best friend, Lizzie, a couple of years ago, before they'd stopped speaking. The salts were still in their polka dot wrapping. They'd been deep in the middle of the pile, which had collapsed a little from the extraction. How had Alex even seen them? Sasha hesitated. She and Kaz had talked at length about why she kept the stolen objects separate from the rest of her life. 
because using them would imply greed or self-interest, because leaving them untouched made it seem as if she might one day give them back, because piling them in a heap kept their power from leaking away. I guess, she said, I guess you can. She was aware of having made a move in the story that she and Kaz were writing, of having taken a symbolic step, but toward the happy ending or away from it. She felt Alex's hand on the back of her head, stroking her hair. You like it hot? He asked. Or medium? Hot, she said. Really, really hot. Me too. He went back to the tub and fiddled with the knobs and shook in some of the salts, and the room instantly filled with a steamy, plant-like odor that was deeply familiar to Sasha. The smell of Lizzie's bathroom, from the days when Sasha used to shower there after she and Lizzie went running together in Central Park. Where are your towels? Alex called. She kept them folded in a basket in the bathroom. Alex went to get them, then shut the bathroom door. Sasha heard him starting to pee. She knelt on the floor and slipped his wallet from his pants pocket and opened it, her heart firing with a sudden pressure. It was a plain black wallet, worn to gray along the edges. Rapidly, she flicked among its contents, a debit card, a work ID, a gym card. In a side pocket, a faded picture of two boys and a girl in braces, squinting on a beach. A sports team in yellow uniforms, head so small, she couldn't tell if one of them belonged to Alex. From among these dog-eared photos, a scrap of binder paper dropped into Sasha's lap. It looked very old, the edges torn, the pale blue lines rubbed almost away. Sasha unfolded it and saw written in blunt pencil, I believe in you. She froze, staring at the words. They seemed to tunnel toward her from their meager scrap, bringing a flush of embarrassment for Alex, who'd kept this disintegrating tribute in his disintegrating wallet, and then shame at herself for having looked at it. She was faintly aware of the faucet being turned on and of the need to move quickly. Hastily, mechanically, she reassembled the wallet, keeping the slip of paper in her hand. I'm just going to hold this, she was aware of telling herself as she tucked the wallet back into Alex's pocket. I'll put it back later. He probably doesn't remember it's in there. I'll actually be doing him a favor by getting it out of the way before someone finds it. I'll say, hey, I noticed this on the rug. Is it yours? And he'll say, that? I've never seen it before. It must be yours, Sasha. And maybe that's true. Maybe someone gave it to me years ago, and I forgot. And did you? Put it back? Kaz asked. I didn't have a chance. He came out of the bathroom. And what about later? After the bath? Or the next time you saw him? After the bath, he put on his pants and left. I haven't talked to him since. There was a pause, during which Sasha was keenly aware of Kaz behind her, waiting. She wanted badly to please him, to say something like, it was a turning point, everything feels different now, or I called Lizzie and we made up finally, or I've picked up the harp again, or just I'm changing. I'm changing. I'm changing. I've changed. Redemption. Transformation. God, how she wanted these things. Every day, every minute. Didn't everyone? Please, she told Kaz. Don't ask me how I feel. All right, he said quietly. They sat in silence, the longest silence that had ever passed between them. Sasha looked at the window pane, rinsed with rain, smearing lights in the falling dark. 
She lay with her body tensed, claiming the couch, her spot in this room, her view of the window and the walls, the faint hum that was always there when she listened. In these minutes of Kaz's time, another, then another, then one more. That was Susan Choi reading Found Objects by Jennifer Egan. The story appeared in The New Yorker in December of 2007 and became the opening chapter of Egan's novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which was published by Knopf in 2010. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Susan, on one level, a simple level, a story's kind of a, a case study of kleptomania. What is it that makes it more than that? I think the thing that makes it more than that is the idea of narration itself and storytelling, this sense that Sasha desperately wants to, you know, as she puts it, write this new ending in collaboration with Kaz. And there's something in that that I find so moving every time I read the story that has to do with faith, this faith that Sasha has in Kaz. And Egan even finds a very funny way to kind of underscore it when Sasha tells us that she actually doesn't know if Kaz even really is a shrink, that he might just be a fraud, (laughs) but she's, she's chosen to believe in him. And that's very moving to me because I feel that this story is about Sasha struggling so mightily to continue believing in something, to believe in him, to believe in the possibility of change for herself and to believe in the possibility of taking control of her story. Mm Mm-hmm badly as she wants to get to that happy ending, she can't. And I find that very, you know, very heartbreaking and I guess applicable to, you know, life in general, not just this kind of wonderfully particular situation, life as an attractive 30-something secret kleptomaniac in Manhattan. (laughs) I'm interested by what you're saying because my sense reading the story is that you know, yes, she's collaborating with Cause on a story that's a redemptive story that's building to a happy ending. But in order to make the actual life fit with that storyline, she has to hide things and not go to places that are important. So is she actually collaborating or is she just trying to help him shape a narrative that's not true? I think it's much more the latter, which is very sad. <laughs> yeah. You know, you asked me earlier, what did I think made my students respond so powerfully to this story? And I think the absence, at least within the limits of the story of a happy ending and the very real possibility indicated within the story that that happy ending doesn't exist outside the bounds of what we're reading either. Um, I think that acknowledgement feels really powerful to the young people I teach who are facing all the things that they're facing. I mean, we're all facing them, but I can't imagine what it would be like to be you know, confronting the world that we're all confronting now at that age, on the brink of Mm -hmm. adulthood and independence, with so many reasons to be just deeply pessimistic. So I do think that there's something very painfully real about what I view as her inability to actually open up herself and be honest. There's this enormous, conspicuous omission that's indicated in the story. Um, Kaz keeps trying to lead her to talk about her father. And Sasha steadily and resolutely steers him away. Mm -hmm. And why would she so resolutely steer him away from that particular topic if that wasn't possibly the topic 
right? And she says, in that direction lay only sorrow. Well, mm-hmm. you know, you're in therapy, honey. Like that's <laughs> that's the direction you're supposed to go. But she's we know she's not going to. Yeah. It's interesting when I step back from the story and look at what we actually know about Sasha, it's very little. You know, we know she used to have aspirations to work in the music industry or to learn Japanese and play the harp. We know she's lost her job because she talks about her former boss. We don't know why. We know we, mm-hmm. she lost her father when she was six. We don't know why. Um, we know she lost her best friend. We don't really mm-hmm. know why. We get these very fleeting glances at her past and nothing really in depth. We just get this present moment, this, this one date that's described. Why do you think Jennifer Egan is so sort of stinting with those details? I think that the story wants to immerse us in Sasha. I mean, the story is, in an obvious way, it's it's told from Sasha's perspective. It's not a first-person story, but it's close third or the subjective third person in which, you know, we read she and Sasha, and yet we're only given access to, to Sasha's thoughts, Sasha's feelings. We never dip into Kaz's perspective seeing her. We never see her through Alex's eyes. And so... You know, Egan has to do this incredibly difficult thing where she has to immerse us, the reader, in the subjectivity of this character, our protagonist, and be true to all of the ways in which this character is being dishonest with herself, yet indicate to us that those dishonesties are taking place, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We have to know that things are being left out. We have to know that Sasha is lying not just to the world, but to herself. It's so hard to do. Um, But she does it so brilliantly here, I think, through this very systematic inventory of all the things we don't know. Deborah, when you were kind of listing all the things that that we don't know about Sasha, that's evidence of how well built the story is to (laughs) me, is that, um, you know, you have to know something to know to what degree you're ignorant of it, right? And right. and so Egan is managing to indicate to us in all of these different ways, all of these vast realms in which Sasha is going to shut the door in our face. Even the reference to her freelancing, you know, when she and Alex go back to the apartment, there's that desk where she used to write her music reviews less now than it used to be. Well, what happened there? Mm-hmm. Again, we don't know. There are all these artifacts of this lost life. And in a way, I think the the brilliance of the conceit of Sasha's kleptomania is that those objects help a lot in that storytelling. Like the objects are the artifacts of that lost civilization, the bath salts, which are able to show us something that we're never going to truly see. We're never going to see that friendship, but the bath salts give that indication of, you know, once upon a time, this woman had a friend who meant an enormous amount to her and that person's gone. Every object does that kind of work. Yeah. I mean, they contain her life compressed. Yeah. As she says, like, at some point when she sees Alex, I think, seeing her table of loot, Mm -hmm. and she refers to it as something like the raw, warped core of her life. Yeah. I want to look at the details of her impulses, you know, because that is one thing we do know in detail, that everything she steals becomes somehow, at least temporarily, imbued with this kind of energy or potential. It's it's almost vibrating in in her hands or in her purse. Why do you think that is? It's interesting because, as you as you said, that sort of imbued energy or that vibration, it's really short-lived, right? Yeah. Every theft does have this almost ecstatic quality to it. You know, after she takes the wallet in the opening scene, you know, the, the evening, I think, tingles with possibility. Um, similarly with that screwdriver, it almost is a light source. Yeah, it's glowing. And then uh, almost immediately... The energy drains away, the power is lost. And I found it so interesting that in the moment in which Sasha returns the wallet to the woman that she's robbed, this frazzled visitor to New York who (laughs) apology shadows her movements, Mm -hmm. a woman that as soon as Sasha sees her, her fear subsides a little bit because there's a certain, you know, New Yorker's scorn in Sasha Mm -hmm. um, toward this inferior being. um, And yet at the same time, she's terrified. When she returns the wallet, there's this almost electric sense of connection where she feels the woman's relief coursing through her body, Sasha's body. So they had fused, yeah. You know, Egan is able to convey to us that 
these moments of theft from others, remember, never stores. It's not the thing itself. It's something about that thing's adjacency to a person that Sasha needs and that she's taking. And it's almost as if she feeds off of it for a minute, this kind of ability to plug into somebody else's life energy just for a second. Yeah. And then it fizzles and it's gone again. And, and for me, it underscores her loneliness, this, the incredible loneliness of this character, the impossibility of her forming an authentic connection, even with her own shrink to whom she's lying, right? Right. I find that moment where she returns the wallet to the woman at the hotel just fascinating because she catches her eye, I think, in the mirror and thinks the woman knows, knows who she is, knows what she's done. So she confesses, and then it turns out she was wrong. The woman had no idea. And she wants to know what this woman is seeing when she sees Sasha. So Sasha turns to the mirror thinking she'll discover some lost thing about herself. Now, what is that lost thing? I feel as though that line is absolutely key to the story. Yeah. What is that lost thing and why is it that Sasha sort of needs to enter into this condition of like both connection and displacement at the same time? And danger. Yeah. For all her terror of being discovered, what's driving Sasha to make herself so vulnerable to the people from whom she steals? You get the sense that she wants to be caught. Yeah. That she wants to be seen in that way by them. And in that moment, the moment at which she exposes herself to the owner of the wallet and hands it back and realizes that the woman didn't know, but now she does. Now she sees. You know, Sasha wants to know what she's seeing because Sasha herself doesn't have access to it. Yeah. Sasha doesn't know who she is. Yeah. But she didn't turn. She held still and let the woman look. She's tempted to try to take yet another thing, right? She's thinking, if I just look now, I might be able to grab whatever it is that she sees of me. Mm-hmm. It's another form of theft, but she resists in that moment. And that's kind of interesting. She held still and let the woman look. She gives something up in addition to the wallet. In a way, she's giving the same thing to cause. She's letting him look at her. She can't see him. He could see her from his position in the room. You know, she is revealing herself. And then stepping back from it, I suppose, with these moments of refusal to to go deeper. Yeah, it's a real sort of oscillation. Sasha doesn't want to open up, doesn't want to go to the painful places, but she does. She wants someone to dig them out of her. She wants someone to discover them. She doesn't like Alex particularly, but the moment at which he sees all her stuff, all of her stolen loot, she's excited. You know, that's the moment at which she feels drawn to him and touches him. And then again, the moment fades away. Yeah, when when he's looking at all of her stolen stuff, and, and she has that line about, you know, he's seeing the core of her life. Again, it's someone she thinks is seeing her, and she wants to see what he sees. And that's exciting to her, because she can't see herself. Yeah, and it's paradoxical, too, because she's hiding herself, as we've said. I mean, she's hiding herself in... In every possible way, you know, on her dating profile, she's lying about her age. In her therapy sessions, she's avoiding what might be the heart of the matter. She's, you know, she's very artificial in her self-presentation and still kind of wants someone or something to penetrate that. Right. But when she, not to make a pun, when she actually does have sex (laughs) with Alex, what she feels afterwards is a terrible sadness, an emptiness that felt violent as if she'd been gouged. A feeling perhaps that he's seen and removed whatever was at the core of her. She's been emptied. I'm wondering what you think of that line. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not as if he's comprehended anything about her. Right. You know, Alex doesn't understand her better after sex than he did before. And, you know, I love that moment at which she's imagining herself as a completely inexplicable and barely remembered blip in his early New York memories. Mm -hmm. You know, what was that place with the bathtub? Who was that girl? Why would she let him use the bath salts? You know, these items are such fetishes for her, and they embody something. They've lost some of their power, but they're still gaining power from being in a pile like this. But she agrees to let him use this thing that powerfully evokes her friend whom she misses. 
Yeah, I love that moment at which that scent of the past of their friendship sort of fills the room and, of course, means nothing to Alex, um, means everything to her. It almost feels as if asserting herself to him at that moment, saying, you know, no, those aren't to be used. Like, that's not what that's there for. That's not what that means. It's not sitting there meaning I'm bath salt. It means something else. <laughs> it means Lizzie. Um, yeah. It means Lizzie is a self-exposure that there's there's no place for that. She has to stay hidden from him. And the easiest way to stay hidden is to be like, yeah, sure. And so that's a very lonely moment to me because she can't tell him any part of the truth about what that stuff means. The fact that they've just had sex with each other doesn't mean that there's been any intimacy. No, and he's still wearing his shirt. She's still got her jeans. This was not a moment of getting to know each other <laughs> um, in any real way. Yeah. I feel as though it's slightly like self-punishing when she says yes. Like, mm-hmm. I've made this mistake and now I have to pay for it by losing my bath salts. I think that's right. You know, that's the moment at which she's not sure what direction the symbolic step is taking her in. When she says, I guess, I guess you can, she was aware of having made a move in the story that she and Kaz were writing of having taken a symbolic step, but toward the happy ending or away from it. It certainly doesn't feel like toward. Unless you feel like, okay, she's finally letting go of these hoarded, stolen objects. But gaining, it seems, nothing Yeah. in return for that. So then what happens with that piece of paper? I believe in you. We never learn, right? We know that she never returned it. She has to admit to cause that she didn't put it back, that she made no effort to restore it to Alex, that she hasn't seen Alex since. You know, there's that moment where they're talking about the plumber and the screwdriver, where the screwdriver seems to hover in the office, the specter of that screwdriver. Mm -hmm. And that little scrap of paper, in my mind, seems to hover at the end, too. It lived safely in Alex's wallet all those years. Then Sasha took it. But what has she gained? What has it gotten her? Has it moved her farther from or closer to her goal? We don't really know. There's something very indeterminate about the ending and something very heartbreaking about the self-justifying, delusional lie that she tells herself. She's saving him from embarrassment if someone else finds it because it's so corny. Yeah, but even worse that maybe it's hers. Yeah. That idea that, you know, it must be yours, Sasha. Maybe someone gave it to me years ago. Maybe someone told me, I believe in you. (laughs) Which kind of undermines that impulse that she has initially to be embarrassed for him because the flip side of, I think, that knee-jerk, self-protective scorn of Sasha's is this longing to maybe just be an ordinary person like Alex who was loved by someone. You know, someone loved him enough to give him that little silly message. You know, she wants that message for herself. Right. Should our minds go to her father, that perhaps he gave it to her, that that in her mind is what she wants? It's hard to know. I really like the way in which Egan both gestures to the absent father and really withholds evidence as to whether or not that's the thing or the only thing. Who knows? I mean, I think the one thing that's clear is that what's really absent from Sasha's life is any real intimacy with anyone except for Kaz. And even Kaz, she can't really be honest and intimate with. I think that that's the message of the very end of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, she lay with her body tensed, claiming the couch, her spot in this room, her view of the window and walls. And these minutes of Kaz's time that she's taking mm-hmm. in a way that's quite dishonest. And so I think our, our final sense of her is, is as every bit the thief she was and the liar Yeah, at the start, despite her struggle to change and I think her real longing to change. I mean, the irony is that's one thing she's taking that she's also paying for. Yes. One thing I wanted to say about the story in terms of its history of having been in The New Yorker, as you know, years ago, I worked on the New York Stories anthology 
of kind of quintessential stories about New York that mm-hmm. published in The New Yorker. This story had existed at the time that I was working on that book. I mean, this story would have been at the very, very top of the list because it's such a great New York story. And Sasha, to me, is such a quintessential New Yorker, even though we know that there is no quintessential New Yorker. (laughs) Um, And yet one sure sign with her is that she thinks there is. She's very proud of her identity as a New Yorker. It's very, very central to not just the affirmative side of Sasha, but also the side of Sasha that's kind of darker. Her response to the wallet when she first sees it is, you know, we're a New York dummy. Yeah. You don't leave your stuff out like that. I'm going to have to school you because I'm a New Yorker and I know better, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so she has, again, this kind of haughty, scornful New Yorker's attitude, but then also a real pride in having somehow made a life for herself. Mm-hmm. We're not told where she's from, but she strikes me as, you know, one of the settlers like E.B. White in Here is New York talks about the different kinds of New Yorkers and the ones who come from elsewhere as being the passionate ones. Right. And that's how she strikes me. You know, she's hanging on by a thread, she tells the woman, but I think that a lot of the fibers in that thread have to do with the city. And like a quintessential New Yorker, she's in therapy. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and perhaps like a quintessential New Yorker, not getting anywhere in therapy. You mentioned earlier your, your story, Flashlight, which is also set in the midst of a therapy session, partly. And I'm wondering what does that do for you or for Jennifer Ian as a storyteller? What does that allow you to do, that framing? I think one thing that it allows is it makes very explicit the tension between, you know, the outer self and the inner self, which I think is always to a greater or lesser degree present in in fiction and scenes in which you have any interiority at all. There's always that tension between uh, how that character is interacting with the outside world and what's actually going on on the inside. And and there's that challenge to try to make sure the reader knows about both things. They're obviously very often at odds. And I think the premise of the therapy session is really nice and kind of easier armature Mm -hmm. (laughs) for dramatizing that tension. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the whole premise, I think, of the therapy session, or at least a premise, is getting that interior self out see it, share it, narrate it, recognize it. And, you know, in both cases, in Egan's story and in mine, the subject of that session doesn't want to. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't want to, but they sort of do. Again, there's yet, yet another conflict between that desire to open up and let it out and that um, equally strong desire to not do that. It's a great way to write a story about someone who lies. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Because you can show the truth and the, and the lie simultaneously, as you're saying. Exactly. It's one way to solve the problem of the unreliable narrator. I mean, Sasha's our, our narrator here in the sense that it's her sensibility that's controlling all of the information that we learn, but we know that she's, she's not fully to be trusted. It's a challenge for Egan to both show us what it is that Sasha wants us to see and what it is that she wants to hide from us. Yeah. And when you when you read about Sasha in the in the context of the book and you hear about her college days or that she later has children and, and a husband, that doesn't affect how you see her here. No, it doesn't. And in the same way, you know, I can assimilate all of that and experience the more expansive Sasha. <laughs> but, um, you know, I really do love and, and admire and, and struggle to create shorter fiction. It's not my usual form. I tend to be a more expansive writer and to want to tell the reader as much as I know. And so I think I especially appreciate limitation in writing. And so I love the limits that are imposed by, by the length of this story, by the lying, by the restraint within Sasha, which comes from obviously so many different sources and, and we're not told what those sources are. I love all the stuff that's missing and the way in which we have to grapple with what's missing, because that's what she's doing too. Mm-hmm. She's trying to supplement it, get it back, steal it. But it's a it's a story about stuff that's missing. And so I think in that sense, the way in which it's lean and isn't telling us a whole lot feels exactly right. Right. We get to look for the lost thing. Yeah, in a story called Found Objects. 
in which, you know, whatever the real object is never, I think, gets found. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susan. Oh, my pleasure. It was such a treat to talk about and to read this story. I really enjoyed it. Jennifer Egan has published one short story collection and five novels, including A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011, and Manhattan Beach, which won the Andrew Carnegie Medal in 2018. A new novel will be published by Scribner in April of 2022. Susan Choi is the author of five novels, including A Person of Interest, which won the Penn W.G. Sebald Award, and Trust Exercise, which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2019. Her introduction to the reissue of Sigrid Nunez's A Feather on the Breath of God will be published later this summer. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.